And some of us walk in this room this morning, and if we're honest, our race is not easy right now. It feels less like a race and more like just trying to put one foot in front of the other. More like just trying to keep going in the midst of hardship and pain. Just trying to keep moving as we work through issues that are happening in our bodies or in our minds or in our relationships. And so, God, we, we don't want to miss that so many of us are hurting right now. And, God, I, uh, I know some, even in this room, that I've talked to already this morning who are deeply hurting. But collectively, we know so many people. And so, God, I just want to give us just a few seconds to bring before your throne those that we know who are walking through really difficult things right now. Hear our prayers. But Father, it's not just outside of us. In our own hearts, we have concerns. In our own hearts, we have things that we're worried about for us, things that are impending in the future or have just happened recently in the past. And our lives, our, our minds can just cyclically work through the same worries, the same anxieties over and over again. But Jesus, you tell us to cast our anxieties on you. To give you the burden of our load because you're strong enough to carry it and to take on your yoke, which is easy and light. And so God, hear us now as we cast our own anxieties on you. And Father, finally we pray. As we open your word, we we are desperate to hear from you. Don't let us miss this moment in the routine of showing up to worship every single week, in the routine of reading our Bibles every single day. Don't let us miss the reality of exactly what we're doing, which is hearing from your very mouth. Exactly what you want to say to us wherever we are this morning. And so God, give us soft hearts. Give us receptive ears. If we need to be encouraged, encourage us. If we need to be convicted, convict us. If we just need strength to move one day forward in following Jesus, we pray for that. And so feed us from your word, God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, go to Lamentations chapter 3. It'll also be on the screen or pull up a tablet, but you'll want to have this text in front of you as we look at it together. We're actually just going to read verses 19 to 24 together. Lamentations 3, starting in verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I don't know what your experience has been as you've been reading through the Bible, but my experience has always has been at periodically to think this. Uh, it's so interesting what God decided to include in his word, and I guess also what God decided not to include, which we know less about, obviously. But why do we have these books, these 66 books, written over 1,500 years in about seven different genres by 40 different authors? Why these books? Why is this included? And I was reading Lamentations this week, and I, I had that thought. I mean, why is this in here? I mean, this book, which is so dark and so hard, so hollow in so many ways, contains kind of bad theology, if we're honest. When the people are talking about God and saying all these things that aren't true, why is God put this in his word. You know, men and women literally laid down their lives to get that book or those words on that screen for us. Laid down their lives for it. So that we could have lamentations. It's an amazing thing when you really think about it. That we have this word in our laps and what God has chosen to include and what he's chosen not to include. And so why is Lamentations so important? Just to refresh us and get our minds centered on the book of Lamentations in case you didn't read it or zoned out while you were listening or reading. No judgment here. It happens. Uh, Lamentation was written in the immediate aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem, right? So you've got God's people in the darkest season of Israel's history watching what God had given them, what he had promised to Abraham, what David had conquered, where the temple was built, where worship happened. Now they're being moved into exile. All of that is being burned up. All of it is being taken away from them. And as it says in Lamentations 2.5, God has become like an enemy to his own people. So just imagine what that felt like to them. And don't, don't fictionalize what they're feeling. It's easy to do that sometimes when we're reading the Bible. Like these weren't real people walking through real events, seeing real things with real emotions and processing it just like you or I would process it. Look at, listen to some of the things that they had to experience. They watched the temple burn and the priests massacred. They watched infants die of starvation in the arms of their mothers. They watched those same parents have to cannibalize those infants just to stay alive. Young women were being brutally raped. Bodies were piling up in the streets. And all the while, they're getting moved into exile, all in lamentations. We see all of that. And so real suffering that those people are walking through. And here's the worst part for them. It's clear all throughout the book. They know this is God's own doing. This is what he said he was going to do if they didn't turn from their unfaithfulness. And it finally has come to fruition. All this suffering, all this hardship into their lives has come. All the covenant curses first laid out from Moses in Deuteronomy 28 have finally come. And so Lamentations is written as a testimony to this pain and confusion. So here's what we see. If you're reading through it, just to give you some context, it's written by one person almost... Almost for sure, Jeremiah. 
And so Jeremiah is writing, and he writes these five poems. Each chapter is a new poem, and he's writing on behalf of the people. He's expressing what the whole community is feeling, and so lots of times he'll say, I, 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 but he's talking individually, but speaking for everyone, speaking for what everyone is feeling, everyone is suffering, everyone is walking through, and this is real and raw emotion. You know, in chapter three, right before what we just read, those great verses that we all love, let me just give you a couple more things that Jeremiah says these people are feeling. In verse six and seven, he describes himself like God has nailed him into a coffin as a corpse and chained him there. Verses 10 and 11, Jeremiah describes God as a wild animal who's hunted him down and torn him apart. 12 and 13, God is compared to a skilled archer using his people for target practice. 16 to 18, God is shoving their face in the dirt and pounding them. (laughs) In verses 8 and 9, God is totally absent in all of this, at least in their experience of it. They cry for help. He doesn't answer. They feel abandoned. They don't feel hope. And so just think about what they're walking through, what they're feeling, and and we come back to the question, why is this here? Like, you can imagine, like, uh, this is fictional, right? So just in case you don't know that. But someone coming to God and saying, all right, God, we finally got the first rough draft of the Bible together, right? Like, final edits, it's up to you, okay? It's your book. And uh, God comes and he's reading through and it's like, oh, page 1300, Lamentations, what's that about? Oh, this is where Jeremiah said I'm like the wild bear who tears him apart. Yeah, let's take that out, right? Let's do Song of Solomon Part 2. That's a big seller. Everyone will love that a lot more. No, 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 right? Not what happens. God includes this for us. He leaves it in there. And we've already seen over and over again all these historical accounts of Jerusalem falling. We've seen it. We know it. So why is this here? It's not here for history, it's here for honesty. Because here's what God wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt. He wants us to be, to be honest with us about this reality. Life is an agonizing struggle. It's hard. And suffering is absolutely inevitable. God doesn't want to do a bait and switch with us and say, hey, life's easy, just come with me. He wants us to know life at times feels overwhelming. Like you don't know how, to, how you're gonna get your next breath. God's honest with us about that and he wants us to be honest with him about how we feel when we suffer. That's why this book exists. And so all I wanna do is walk through six truths that we see in this passage about suffering and how we should respond to it. So here's the first one. The world is not right, and so suffering should not surprise us. The world is not right, and suffering should not surprise us. So implicit in this passage is something that's made explicit all over Scripture. This world is not what it was meant to be. Sin corrupted it. Sin has damaged it. We see this most clearly in Romans 8, 20, and 21. Where Paul says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Here's the picture that Paul's trying to give us. Everything about the world we live in is broken. God has enslaved it to corruption, which means it's decaying, it's falling apart. And we, we see that. 
Not only in our own lives, but all around us. We see that our bodies fall apart. Our relationships fall apart. The world falls apart. Things decay all the time. Things get old and break. And that's what Paul's trying to tell us in Romans chapter 8. The world we exist in day in and day out is broken. But we don't just know this biblically. We know it experientially. Look, deep down we know, don't we? This is not how things are supposed to be. We're not supposed to experience depression and anxiety and pandemics and tornadoes. We're never supposed to experience death and pain and suffering. It was never supposed to be like this. The world isn't right. And so that's where this leads us. We shouldn't be surprised then when suffering comes. If everything is breaking down, things will break apart in our lives. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. You could easily translate that suffering. When it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. I once heard Tim Keller argue that half of the pain that we feel when we suffer is due to our expectations. That we never worked it deep into our minds that suffering in this life is inevitable because of the brokenness in the world. And so when suffering comes, half of the pain that we feel is because we feel sorry for ourselves. And we weren't ready for it. And we weren't expecting to walk through it. Uh, and so we have to prepare ourselves. We have to know that suffering is inevitable. It makes me think about uh, a little over a year ago, I, I went through my ordination exams to become a pastor. And for years and years and years, people told me, oh, that's the hardest thing you're ever going to do in your life. Those guys, impossible. Those questions, terrible. And I, I mean, just like hearing this over and over again, I expected to walk in that room. And if I hesitated for a second on an answer, it was going to be like, are you kidding me right now? You want to be a pastor? You're barely a Christian. Like, you know, so it's like worked it up into my mind to be. So I finally got there prepared like crazy because I had that expectation. And the reality was it was tough, but those guys were fair and they were for me. But here's the problem. If we don't, if we have bad expectations, and suffering surprises us, it's going to hurt way worse. Whereas if we prepare ourselves for the reality that life is hard and suffering is coming, we're either going to get there and go, oh, you know what, this wasn't as bad as I was expecting, or, oh no, this is exactly what I was expecting. It hurts. But we're ready. We're prepared. Suffering should not surprise us. Secondly, God is honest with us and ex expects honesty from us. And so if Lamentations teaches us anything, God is honest with us about the reality of suffering. And he has no interest in us faking what we really feel. It might make you, uh, some of those things I read even that it said in the Bible might have made you uncomfortable a minute ago, right? That Jeremiah would express towards God those things that he was feeling and those things that he was thinking about God. But what, if anything, does Lamentations teach us if it's not to say, hey, when you've got those things, listen, some of you in life have been walking through something so hard for so long and you resent God for it. You do. What are we supposed to do with that? God says, tell me. Bring it to me. 
Come and be honest with me. The la- as we're reading through the Old Testament, isn't it obvious? The last thing that God wants is dressed up religion that hides what's really happening in our hearts, right? God wants our honesty and lamentation shows us. So here's what maybe some of us need to do. Some of us need to go find a field somewhere and yell at God. Just get it all out. Maybe make sure no one can see you so no one calls the police. But just yell at God. And then maybe you need to repent. But the last thing that God wants is for you to hold that in your heart and to get bitter and resentful and eventually go into unbelief. God invites us to be honest with him. And I just want to say this. If you're not a Christian and you're here with us this morning, I think we owe you an apology on this one. Because I think for the longest time, here's what the church has thought. To convince more people to follow Jesus, here's what we need to tell them. Hey, come follow Jesus, life gets easier. Hey, come follow Jesus, pain goes away. And so in order to keep up that facade, we can't lament. We can't talk about how life is hard and sometimes we don't get it. And sometimes we can't stand what God is doing. And so we've put up this image of what Christianity is actually like when the Bible actually tells us sometimes you start following Jesus and life gets harder. And so we're dishonest when we don't lament. And I think we've missed the boat on that. Because as the church with objective truth about the world and how it functions, shouldn't we be the ones leading the way and saying, hey, here's what's worth lamenting over. And here's how to do it. And so we've missed that. Thirdly, sin is sometimes but not always connected to our suffering. Sin is sometimes but not always connected to our suffering. I think there are at least three categories of suffering in Scripture. We'll just talk about these first two. You can see them on the screen. The first one is deserved suffering. The second is innocent suffering. And the third is righteous suffering. So righteous suffering we won't talk about, but it's just suffering uh, because we follow Jesus. Connected to that. But let's talk about the first two. The first is deserved suffering. And so this is kind of suffering that we see in Lamentations. That suffering that comes into our lives is directly connected to sin. Uh, Sometimes, uh, as a direct consequence, sometimes our sin just leads to suffering automatically, just like that. Other times, there's a pattern of sin in our lives, and God sends suffering into our lives to break us out of that pattern because he loves us. But it's still connected to our sin. It's still something that God is doing. Either way, this is key. Make sure you don't miss this when it comes to deserved suffering. For the Christian, suffering when it's connected to our sin is always discipline and never punishment. Always discipline, never punishment. How do we know that? Because Jesus took all the punishment, right? He took it all. All the punishment that we ever deserve because of our sin is on Jesus. God didn't hold some back for when you really sin to put that on you to make sure you really have to pay for it. No, he disciplines you because he loves you. So look at Hebrews chapter 12. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. This is so key. We have to see this. For the Christian, all suffering is formative and never punitive. And so suffering comes sometimes is directly correlated to sin in our lives. But we also don't believe in karma, right? 
We also don't believe that A leads to B always. Sometimes suffering comes and it's unfair. There's also innocent suffering. Innocent suffering comes when we sin, don't sin, but still suffer. The best example we have of this in the Bible is in John chapter 9, where, where Jesus encounters this man born blind. And the disciples immediately say, their first reaction is, okay, he, he was born blind. Who sinned? Him or his parents? You hear the implicit question. It's somebody's fault. Suffering is always connected to sin. And Jesus says, neither. But he was born like this so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What's his point? That sin and suffering, it's not always cause and effect. Sometimes we experience suffering in this life and we're innocent in a sense, right? We're never totally innocent, but it's not directly connected to our sin. And so sometimes there's innocent suffering. So here's the problem though. How do we know? How do we know if we're suffering because of our sin or if we're just suffering because we live in a fallen, broken world? James helps us with this. Look at James 1, 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is so helpful to answer this question. Because here's what James says. All kind of things come into our life that are hard. All kind of suffering. And he doesn't differentiate. He just tells us what to do and why it's coming. And he says that the goal is always the same, our maturity. That when suffering comes in our life, no matter if it's connected to sin or not, is irrelevant for this purpose. God is using it to make you perfect and complete, to make you more like Jesus. And so whenever suffering comes in your life, you can always ask this question. First, is there any sin that I need to repent of? Does it exist? And so you ask the Spirit to search you and know you and reveal any sin in you. And if you can't come up with anything that you feel like, man, this is a huge issue in my life, then you say to God, all right, God, I can't find any sin that needs to go. I don't know what you're trying to do in this, but show me your purpose. Show me how you're trying to mature me. Show me how you're trying to change me. And above all, help me to trust you right in the middle of this. And so it almost doesn't matter, James tells us, if it's connected to sin or not, the same goal is there, maturity. Number four, God is not indifferent, and his love will have the final word. When it comes to suffering, God is not indifferent, and his love will have the final word. Look back at verses 19 and 20. Jeremiah summarizes all this suffering that's happened in his life and the life of God's people. He says, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Wormwood and gall is like bitter poison. But that's what the people feel like. They've drank this bitter poison and they'll always remember it. They'll never get out of this place they're in. They feel hopeless, despondent, despairing. But then in verse 21, everything flips. It's like Jeremiah has this realization. Look at verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Here's the paradoxical thing that Jeremiah realizes. 
he realizes, wait a second. (laughs) None of us want to be walking through what we're walking through right now. But you know what? God told us this was coming. He warned us over and over and over again. He said, repent and turn or this sort of covenant curse is coming. And God was faithful to do what he said he was going to do, even though it was a bitter pill. Maybe, just maybe, God will be faithful enough to also uphold his unconditional promises. That he promised to be our God and for us to be his people. And if he brought the suffering he said he was going to bring, maybe there's also still hope because God is faithful. And he'll stick to his promises. And so he calls to mind these truths. This literally means to cause to return to my heart. What he's saying is that in the midst of suffering, we have to take God's truth and forcefully put it in the equation. That when you're suffering especially, it's almost impossible to remember God's love and his grace and his mercy and his goodness. All you're going to be thinking is, this is hard, I don't deserve this, when is this going to end, why is God doing this? You get into that cycle And so what you have to do is forcefully put something else into the equation. You have to interrupt the cycle and call it to mind. Cause it to return to your heart. That's what Jeremiah does here. It's what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls preaching the gospel to ourselves. Jacob mentioned this earlier. This is a great quote, and this is a skill we all have to learn to do, especially when we suffer. Here's what he says. There's a sense in which the primary task of the scriptures is to teach us how to talk to ourselves. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come the the moment you wake up in the morning. You didn't originate them, but they're talking to you, bringing back all the problems of yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. But instead of letting yourself talk to you, start talking to yourself. As the psalmist says, why are thou cast down, O my soul? His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a minute. I'll speak to you. Talk to yourself and say, whether I feel it or not, I believe the scriptures. I believe God's word is true, and I will stay my soul on it. I will believe in it, come what may. Does that ever happen in your Christian life? Where you stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself and forcefully place the truth of God into your heart to call it to mind. So what exactly do we call to mind? These great verses, verses 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So just two things I want to show you that Jeremiah shows us how to call to mind. The first one is steadfast love. Steadfast love. Steadfast love is this word has said. It's the word that we see over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Where God is saying to his people, I love you because I love you. 
Deuteronomy 7. I didn't start loving you because you were the biggest or strongest nation. I just started loving you. In other words, get this in your brain. I didn't start loving you because of anything you did. I'm not going to stop loving you because of anything you do. My love is steadfast. It's steady. It stays no matter what comes. One of the things that suffering does to us is it makes us feel abandoned and forgotten. It isolates us. And the thing we feel most deeply in that moment is, does God still love me or has he abandoned me? And so here's what you have to do. Steadfast love, take it off the shelf and force it into your heart. (laughs) Self, I know what you feel like right now. You feel abandoned and forgotten and all circumstances would point to that being the reality. But God's word is true. God's character is steadfast. He loves you because he loves you. He has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And you force that into the equation. You bring it to mind because you won't naturally think about it. Tim Keller says, suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. You won't make it unless you know these truths. Steadfast love number one. The second thing we call to mind is new mercies. (laughs) New mercies. Um, this, this point, uh, I was so helped by Dane Ortland and gentle and lowly. If you haven't read that book, read it. It's phenomenal. But he talks a lot about mercy, and, and, and uh, a common definition of mercy that uh, the church has used for a long time is to say uh, that mercy is not getting what we do deserve, right? God withholding bad things that we deserve. And I, I would say that's partially true. That almost gets us there. But I think it makes God feel a little distant and not connected. Biblical mercy is actually closer to compassion. Where God says, Hey, I'm not just distant, not giving you what you don't deserve. I actually feel with you. I'm with you right in the middle of the mess. I'm near. I care. And this is so important because all through Jeremiah and Lamentations, we've seen this picture over and over again of a God who's just and a God who's righteous. And now we see a God who's pouring out all this wrath. But in the midst of that, there's something deeper and more central to his heart, something that flows more naturally from him than his judgment. Look at Lamentations 3.33. So I told you these are five poems, and and, um, they're very structured based on the Hebrew alphabet, and they kind of all center on this verse. This is the literary high point of Lamentations, the peak of the argument that the author is making, the thing that he most wants us to see. And here's what he says in Lamentations 3.33. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. And here's what that verse is saying. God is clearly behind the people's suffering and lamentations. There's no doubt about it. But this verse wants us to know he doesn't do it from his heart. It's almost like, it's almost like God brings it reluctantly. Don't hear me wrong. God's attributes are perfect, all of them. But there are some things that are more central to his heart. Some things that more naturally flow from him. 
And one of those things is that his most natural impulse is not punishment, but mercy. You can think about it this way. I'm naturally an extremely jumpy person. So even though I know people are living in my house with me, they still manage to scare me all the time. So one example, I was in the bathroom the other day. This is, don't, that's all you need to know about the bathroom. Okay, so I'm in the bathroom and I'm doing mouthwash, right? And uh, Jen comes around the corner very innocently, scared me to death. Like, and you get mad, right? You're like, why'd you do that? It's like, I'm just walking in the bathroom. So I got mouthwash in my mouth. Mouthwash is now out of my mouth, on the mirror, across the bathroom, everywhere, because my natural impulse is to get super scared and jumpy when I get fearful. What's God's most natural impulse? If you could catch him off guard, as it were, what most naturally flows out of him? <laughs> Mercy. Mercy. That's his deepest heart, his deepest impulse. It's why theologians call judgment his strange work. Listen to what Dane Ortland says. Scripture tells us that God is slow to anger. He doesn't have his finger on the trigger. It takes much accumulated provoking to draw out his wrath. Unlike us, who are emotional dams ready to break, God can put up with a lot. This is why in the Old Testament, it speaks of God being provoked to anger by his people dozens of times. But not one time are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded, while divine mercy is slow to build, but it's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. That it's like God's got this deep well of mercy for you. And when you're right in the midst of suffering, what you have to remember is that God's deepest heart is not here. Even though it's happening, even though you're suffering in your life, God's deepest heart for you is to love you and to show you mercy and to ultimately restore you. And we have to call that to mind. It'll be solid ground to stand on. Dane Ortland continues, Christ does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. He went down into the horror of death and plunged through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace for his people. And so, brothers and sisters, stand on this simple truth. God's mercies are new every morning. And guess what? <laughs> They're new every afternoon and every night and every sleepless moment. And in the midst of sin and in the midst of pain and suffering, God's mercies are new. You never scratch the surface. They never wear out. They just keep flowing from him into your life over and over and over again because there is deepest heart they're his most natural impulse to be with you and love you and care for you, even in the midst of suffering. And so number five, suffering is never pointless, but we don't always get to see the point. This will be a very quick point, but I think it's worth noting. Suffering is not always linear. What I mean is it's not always if suffering comes into our life, it's hard for a little while, and then God lets us see what he was doing, and it's you know, all good in the end. There, suffering always has a point, but we don't always get to see the point. 
Listen to how Lamentations ends. We get to this great high point in chapter three. Oh, your mercy and your love, I call it to mind. I now have hope. Then in chapter five, last verses of Lamentations. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. That's how it ends. But that's such good news because isn't that the reality of suffering in a broken world? Sometimes God is gracious with us and lets us see what he was doing. Sometimes we have no idea. And you have moments where you can see God is good and faithful and then moments where you're in the deepest pits of despair. And then you come back up and then you're down again. Suffering is never linear. It's never pointless, but we don't always get to see the point. Job saw this. I mean, what a great example Job is. We see Job's whole life, so we know the story, right? But Job, if you just get into his brain, he's going, what in the world is happening? I'm living as righteously as possible, and everything around me is falling apart. He says in Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And so, brothers and sisters, in suffering, the point is not to go, all right, what's God doing? I have to see it. The point is when you're right in the middle of it, what Paul would say, rejoice in your suffering, right in the midst of it, is to go, God, teach me how to trust you in this moment. Teach teach me how to trust you, even if I never see what you were doing, I have no idea what the point of that was. I trust that you're a God who never pointlessly lets me suffer, but is always working all things for my good. So suffering's never pointless, but we always, don't always see the point. Number six, and very quickly, this life is not ultimate. And suffering has an expiration date. This life is not ultimate. Suffering has an expiration date. The hardest thing, by far, in the midst of suffering, when life is really hard and pain is really deep, is to ever see a moment where it would end. It just feels like the end is never going to come. And and I know some of you have been suffering for an incredibly long time, and there actually is no end in this life. It'll never go away. And yet suffering, even in that type, has an expiration date, and it's coming sooner than we think. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4.17. This light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. (laughs) I read that verse, and sometimes when we're suffering, we go, I can't wait to go and ask God why he made me go through that. I, like, highly doubt we will have that question. Because we will get to heaven, and we'll say, that is, like, so distant of a memory, so far from my mind, because what I'm experiencing right now is so joy-filled, so incredible, so beyond anything I could have ever possibly imagined. It's not even worth thinking about what I just walked through in life. (laughs) Like, that is such a distant memory that I don't even care about. Because this glory, oh, it's not even worth comparing. There aren't scales that it might balance out in your favor. It's a knockout victory. It's this beautiful moment in Lord of the Rings um, where uh, it looks like Gandalf has died. Everything seems hopeless. And then Gandalf comes back, seemingly from the dead. And Samwise Gamgee, the best character by far, sees him and says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then again, I thought I was dead. 
Is everything sad going to come untrue? Everything sad going to come untrue? Sam has this moment. And if you rose from the dead, is it possible that everything hard we've walked through is one day going to be undone? And in the Christian life, here's what we know for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Jesus really did raise from the dead. (laughs) He really did defeat sin and death and hell and the grave for us. He really did come back. And so all sad things really are going to come untrue. Suffering has an expiration date. There is an end. How do we know it? Because Jesus is the ultimate Lamentations 3 sufferer. He's the only truly innocent sufferer who was torn apart and pierced by God. He faced the ultimate abandonment, begging God for the cup to pass from him, only for God not to answer and to ultimately cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's the ultimate bearer of God's wrath. He drinks the cup of bitter poison so that all that's left for us is the cup of sweet wine, the cup of steadfast love and new mercies. Because brothers and sisters, Jesus has done it all. He's done it all. And his resurrection gives us hope that all sad things will come untrue, that suffering has an expiration date, and he is faithful and true. We can trust him. Let's pray. Father, we, um, <clears throat> we love your word. Sometimes um, some books are harder than others. Lamentations gives us hard words, but we think hard words create soft people. And that's what we want. We want soft hearts. God, I know... Um, Some of us in this room are walking through suffering at this exact moment. And these six points are great, uh, but they don't always comfort us right in the midst of suffering. Uh, But God, you can comfort us. You love us. You wrap your arms around us. And so I pray in two different places, wherever we are, if we're suffering right now, that we would have the strength and the ability to call to mind what's true about you. And if we can't do it, that you would put people around us to call it to mind for us. But God, for those of us who aren't suffering right now, that we wouldn't be surprised or taken off guard when it comes because you're honest with us. This is a broken world where things break down and suffering is inevitably going to come. And so prepare us even now, God. And in the midst of it all, help us to trust that you're a God who has our good in mind, whose deepest heart is mercy. And so, God, help us to come to you often for new mercies that are new every morning and never run out for us. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now is really difficult. Just trying to make it to the next step. Because life is hard. And God, I know from uh, friends I've already talked to in this room this morning that worship even can be a struggle right now to get the words out, to think through the pain of life. And God, all across this room, we know all kinds of needs of people around us who are struggling, who are walking through really difficult things. And so God, hear our prayers now as we lift up brothers and sisters to your throne of grace.
and God in our own hearts. We have anxieties, we have worries, we have fears, we have doubts. Jesus, you're a Savior who tells us to cast all of our burdens on you so that we can take on your yoke, which is gentle and easy and light. So God, hear our prayers as we cast our anxieties on you. And Father, finally, uh, other needs in our lives that we haven't mentioned. People who don't know you, kids who are far from you, relationships in our lives that are struggling. God, hear our prayers. God, thank you for hearing us. Thank you that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're heard because of our brother, Christ, who entered your throne of grace for us, who tore the curtain, removed the veil, so we can come and have access to you. And God, above all, we need to hear from your word this morning. So we pray for soft hearts and receptive ears. God, change us, encourage us, challenge us. Whatever we need, you know it. Penetrate us with your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in Lamentations chapter 3 today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and pull that out. Or there is one in front of you. You can look at it on your phone. It's on the screen. Lots of options, but do have uh, God's word in front of you as we look at Lamentations chapter 3. We're going to read 19 only to 24 together. Lamentations 3, 19 to 24. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, and it's bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. This is the word of the Lord. You know, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, I don't know if you've thought this as you've read through scripture, but it's pretty fascinating to think about the things that God decided to include in his word and the things he decided not to include. There were other books written, other things that happened, other perspectives. So why these 66 books? Why these seven genres of literature? Why these 40 authors over 1,500 years in different places, in different locations? And we don't want to lose sight of the fact ever, even though this is so far from our consciences, that people gave their lives to get this word into our laps right now so that we could read it in our own language. Blood was shed. Because people believe so deeply, these are exactly the words that God wanted to pass down to us. Nothing more, nothing less. And I think that's a fascinating thought as you come to a book like Lamentations. 
And you think, why in the world did God include this in our Bibles? Why do we have this before us? This hard book to work through, all of this destruction, all of this depression, all of this suffering. So just to refresh you, in case you uh, haven't read or zoned out as you listened or read this week, it happens, don't worry about it, we're in this together, right? So in case you miss Lamentations, you're like, I don't even know what I was doing that day, let me just refresh you. So Lamentations is a book that's written in the immediate aftermath of the southern tribes being destroyed by Babylon and the people being taken into exile. This is the darkest moment in the history of Israel, a moment where it says in Lamentations 2.5 that God became like an enemy to his own people. Now just remember this. Uh, This is the land that was promised to Abraham. This is the land that they conquered. This is the city that was given to David. This is where they worshiped God. This is where the temple was. This is where their homes were. And in an instant, it's taken away. It's all gone. And so Lamentations is written to give language to this pain and confusion that God's people are feeling. And let me just remind you of some of the things that we saw even before chapter 3 that are happening, this real suffering. You know, part of the problem when we read the Bible is we can fictionalize it a little bit and forget that these are real people and these are real issues and this is real suffering and this is real pain and they would have processed it just like you and I would process it and they would hurt just like you and I have hurt. So listen to some of the things they've walked through. They watched their temple burn and their priests get massacred. They watched their infants die of starvation in the arms of their mothers. And the starvation was so bad that those same infants had to be eaten just so people could stay alive. Young women were getting brutally raped. Bodies are piling up in the streets. Family and friends, one by one, being moved into exile. So just imagine what you're thinking and feeling, what you're processing. And that's what Lamentations is all about. So here's what we see in Lamentations. We have five poems, one each chapter. And almost certainly this is Jeremiah writing on behalf of the people. So he uses language like, I saw this, I did this, I experienced this. But it's a collective suffering. He's writing for God's people to say, here's what we're experiencing. Here's what we're processing. Here's what we're going through. These five poems of desperation, of sadness, and of hopelessness. And this is not an edited script. This is raw, real emotion. Earlier in chapter 3, before we get to the verses we're going to look at, listen to how Jeremiah describes the people's suffering, specifically how he describes God's role in it. He says, God is nailing him into a coffin like a corpse and then handcuffing him in there. Verses 10 and 11, Jeremiah describes God as a wild animal who hunts him down and rips him apart. Verses 12 and 13, he says, God's like a skilled archer who looks at us like target practice. And he always hits the mark. And he just keeps shooting us. And on top of it all, verses 8 and 9, the people are crying out for help, but God is totally silent. Seemingly not listening, definitely not present, definitely not uh, taking away their suffering. And so this is pretty intense stuff. And so we have to ask, Why is this in our Bibles? Why is this here? Why did God preserve this for us? You know, uh, this didn't happen, by the way, but just imagine the scenario where uh, somebody brings to God like the rough draft of the Bible, right? 
They're like, all right, God, here's what we've kind of put together. Here's what we were thinking, but you're the final editor. Like, give us your thoughts. And God comes down the book list and he's like, Lamentations. What was, what was that again? Page 1300. Oh, this is the one where Jeremiah says, I'm a wild bear who rips him apart. I remember that one now. Cut it, right? Song of Solomon part two. That'll sell. Let's put that in there, right? No, God doesn't do that. He leaves this in intentionally for a purpose. You know, it's really crazy. If you've, if you've been reading through the Bible, how many times have we already read about Jerusalem getting destroyed? A lot. A lot. So why do we need it again? I would argue this isn't here for more history. This is here for honesty. What God's doing in this moment is saying, let me double click real quick on a moment of God's people's deepest pain because this is not a bait and switch that you're entering into. What I want you to know is that life is hard, that suffering is real, and sometimes it's overwhelmingly hard. That you're gonna feel like you can't take one more step through the pain. God wants us to know that. So he gives us lamentations as these emotions are processed to prepare us for these moments. And so here's all I want to do in our time together. You're going to say, all we want to do? That feels like a lot. But this is it. Uh, We're going to walk through six biblical truths in this passage about suffering and how we respond to it. Because I think that's what God wants to teach us. What is suffering and how do we respond to it? So first of all, this world is not right. So suffering should not surprise us. This world is not right. So suffering should not surprise us. Implicit in this passage, explicit all over scripture, is this idea that we live in a broken, fallen world. That the world you currently live in is not what it was created to be, and it doesn't exist in God's intended purpose. So look at Romans chapter 8, verse 20. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. That God has enslaved uh, creation to bondage, to corruption. That the world around us is falling apart. Everything breaks. But not just the world around us, we break. Our bodies break down. Our relationships break down. We get cancer. Our minds break down. Our marriages break down. This is the world that we inhabit where everything is broken, where everything is decaying because sin has entered the world. But we don't just know this biblically. We also know it experientially, right? We know every time we watch the news and there's another shooting, we know it's not supposed to be this way. It's not. You feel it deep in your heart. Every funeral you go to, you know we weren't created to die. This was not the purpose. And yet it's the reality of what sin has done. It's part of the broken order of things. But we also shouldn't be surprised. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. You could easily translate that suffering. Do not be surprised when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I once heard Tim Keller say that half the pain we feel in suffering is because we're surprised that it comes. Half the pain we feel is because we weren't prepared for it, we think it's unfair, and we don't understand it, and we think it shouldn't be happening. 
And so, so key in suffering is that we have the right expectations of living in a broken world and the reality that suffering is coming because of it. Expectations are everything. So I was thinking uh, about this this week, and I was thinking uh, about two years ago, I was about to go through the exam process to become a pastor for ordination. And I cannot tell you for years and years and years and years how many people told me, oh, that's going to be awful. Those guys in that room, they kind of rip people apart. And so I went into that process thinking, if I make it out alive, this will be a success, A. B, I, I think if I stumble at all or, or uh, you know, trip up on something, they're going to say, how dare you want to be a pastor? You're barely a Christian. Get out of here. So I'm walking in with that mindset, right? What the reality was, those guys were fair. They were for me. It was hard, but I'd built up this expectation so high in my mind. When I finally got there, I was prepared. It didn't surprise me. Suffering works the same way. If you're not walking through suffering right now, what you have to do is prepare your heart for it and go, the Bible is honest that life is hard and suffering is coming. So when we get there, there's only really two options. We can either go, yeah, this is exactly as hard as I thought it was going to be. Or, hey, you know what? I thought it was going to be a lot worse, but I was prepared. I wasn't caught off guard, and it's so important that we have that mindset when it comes to suffering. So second point, second thing we want to learn about suffering, God is honest with us, and he invites honesty from us. He's honest with us, and he invites honesty from us. So we've already said this book exists for God's honesty with us about the state of the world, but it also invites honesty from us. I don't know if you felt this when I was reading those verses earlier. Did anybody feel slightly uncomfortable God ripping people apart? Really? But if Lamentations exists for any reason, it's this. God is saying to us, be honest with me. The last thing in the world I want is for you to dress up your life and your prayers and your relationship with me with this facade that everything's good when deep in your heart, you're bitter at me. You hate me for how your life has gone. You're angry that the things you expected to come didn't come. And so God invites us, come and yell at me. Come and just give it to me. Come and lay it all out before me. Hey, maybe then you need to go repent after that, by the way. But in the first place, if you have the, already in your heart, you have those emotions towards God, he says, come and give it to me. So here's what some of you need to do this afternoon. Don't delay. Find a field and go and yell at God. Because already in your heart, you're angry. You're bitter. Can't believe God's putting you through this. Maybe make sure no one's around so no one calls the cops. Because that's not what you want. But process that emotion with God. He invites that from you. He wants it from us. By the way, if you're not a Christian and you're here with us this morning, I think that we owe you an apology on this point. Because I think for so long to make Christianity look attractive to the world, here's the bill of goods that we've sold. Come follow Jesus and everything gets easier. Come follow Jesus and you get everything that you want in life. But the reality that the Bible tells us is, come follow Jesus and life might get harder. More suffering might come. More pain might be coming for you. But in order to prop that message up that we've given, there's a total absence of lament in the church of dealing with hard things in life. And so we need to learn to lament again because God is honest with us and he invites honesty from us. So point number three, sin is sometimes, 
but not always connected to our suffering. Sin is sometimes, but not always connected to our suffering. I think there's at least three kinds of suffering that we see in the Bible. There's deserved suffering, there's innocent suffering, and there's righteous suffering. We'll hit those first two. So righteous suffering is just um, suffering because you follow Jesus. The suffering actually comes your way in the name of Christ. But let's look at those first two more in depth. The first one is deserved suffering. Deserved suffering. This is the kind of suffering that we see in lamentations. Suffering that is connected to our sin. That God says to the people, because of your sin, this suffering is coming your way. And that happens in our lives as well. There are times when suffering comes in our life that's a natural consequence of our sin. We sin and things fall apart. A leads to B. There are also times where there's a pattern of sin in our lives and God allows suffering to come to break up the pattern of sin because he loves us. And so sometimes suffering is connected to our sin, either as a natural consequence or God sending it. But this is a key point. Don't miss this. We, almost none of us operate and talk like this when we suffer. Here's what we have to always realize. Even when it's because of sin, Suffering from God to the Christian is always discipline and never punishment. Always discipline, never punishment. How do we know? Because Jesus took all the punishment. God didn't hold some back so when things get really bad in your life, he can go, yes, this is the opportunity. I finally get to get you. No, he put all that punishment on Christ. And so for the Christian, suffering is formative, not punitive. You don't have to wonder, am I being punished right now? You can always know this might be from the hand of God because of my sin, but it's because he loves me to discipline me. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. The Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. And so sometimes suffering comes, and it's directly correlated to sin in our lives. But we also don't believe in karma, right? It's not always like that. There's also innocent suffering. Innocent suffering, where suffering comes when we don't sin, but still suffer. The best example of this, I think, in Scripture is in John chapter 9. Here's what happens. Such an important interchange. There's a man born blind that Jesus and the disciples come upon. And the disciples immediately, because it's just written into their hearts, go, all right, this dude was born in serious suffering, born like that. So here's the question, Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents? You hear the implicit uh, thing behind that question is, it has to be connected to sin. It has to be. You only suffer because it's connected to sin. But Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question, neither him nor his parents sinned. He was born blind to display the works of God. But it teaches us this, that some suffering is not connected to sin. Some suffering just comes because we live in a fallen world and things are broken. And so we suffer, as it were, innocently, not because of our sin. Now, here's the problem. How do we know? When suffering comes in our life, how do we know? Is this because of sin? Is this because of living in a fallen world? Like, where is this coming from and why? How do we figure that out? James helps us. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, 
And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So here's what James says. All kind of suffering is going to come into your life, but he doesn't try to differentiate it for us. Instead, he just says, the goal is the same, to sanctify you, to mature you, to make you more like Jesus, to perfect you. And so when suffering comes, you don't have to spend a ton of time trying to figure out, is this connected to some sin in my life or not? You can always go, is there anything I need to repent of? Anything. And if nothing immediately comes to mind, the prayer transitions in suffering to this. God, I don't know what you're trying to do in me, but give me the faith to persevere through it. Give me the ability to be moldable in the midst of this suffering. I don't see any sin, but if there's sin, show it to me. The point remains the same. God's goal is our maturity, which is so important because for most of us, when we suffer, our goal is just to make it through, right? Just to survive. But God wants to broaden our perspective and say, no, I want to do something deeper in you through this. So we get to do that with him. Point number four. God is not indifferent, and his love will have the final word. God is not indifferent, and his love will have the final word. So in in, uh, verses 19 and 20, Jeremiah summarizes all this suffering, and he says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Wormwood and gall is like bitter poison. Jeremiah is saying, we've, we've taken all this suffering from God's hand, and it's like bitter poison that's going to infect us and affect us forever. They can't stop thinking about it. But then comes verse 21. And this amazing flip happens from the whole book of Lamentations that's all despair and all hopelessness. And Jeremiah says this in verse 21. This I call to mind, and therefore... I have hope. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. What's happened in Jeremiah's heart in this moment? Here's what's happened. He suddenly realizes, hey, we're walking through all this suffering, and God warned us about it. He told us it was coming. He called us to repent, and we didn't listen, and he was faithful to do what he said he was going to do. We didn't want it, but God was consistent. Is it possible that God could also be consistent with his covenant promises. That even though, though things look dark and hopeless, that God might hold true to his promise that he will be our God and we will be his people no matter what. Is that possible? And so all of a sudden, Jeremiah is filled with this hope. This phrase, but I call to mind, is literally cause to return to my heart. So here's what you have to do when you suffer. When you're walking through something hard, all that comes, it's like um, what counselors call intrusive thoughts. Over and over and over again, what's naturally going to enter your brain is hopelessness, despair, pain. There's no end to this. This is too hard. I can't bear it. And so what you have to do is cause what you know is true to come to mind because it's not going to happen naturally. So you have to go, hey, even though things look hopeless, even though I'm in this cycle of thinking, I'm going to insert something new into the equation that I know is true based on God's word to break this up. Many people call this preaching the gospel to ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, there is a sense in which the primary task of the scriptures is to teach us how to talk to ourselves 
Have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment that you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they're talking to you, bringing back all the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who's talking? Yourself is talking to you. But instead of allowing yourself to talk to you, start talking to yourself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? The psalmist asked. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Talk to yourself and say, whether I feel it or not, I believe the scriptures. I believe God's word is true and I will stay my soul on it. I will believe in it come what may. Oh, you have to insert truth that you may not feel at that exact moment, but it still remains true. And so what are the things that we call to mind? Look at these great verses in uh, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Two things we call to mind in the midst of suffering. Number one, steadfast love. Steadfast love. This is the word has said in Hebrew. It's this covenant love that God has for his people. All throughout the Old Testament, we've seen it. And here's, the, here's what it is. God says, I love you because I love you. Stop trying to figure out a reason that I started loving you. It doesn't exist. He says to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 7, hey, why do you think I picked you? You weren't the strongest, you weren't the smartest, you weren't the biggest. There were a lot of other nations to choose, but I chose you. So guess what? Because I chose you not based on anything that I found in you, I'm not going to stop loving you based on anything you do in the future. It's the steadfast love of the Lord. Here's what's hard in suffering. We feel abandoned. We feel like there must be some reason that God stopped loving us. Because everything about our circumstances would say that. Everything. And so you start talking to yourself and you say, you don't feel it right now. You don't feel loved. You don't feel cared for. You don't feel like God's uh, faithful to what he said he was going to do. But self, God loves you. He's not going to stop loving you. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. He's never going to find anything in you that's going to cause him to leave. He loves you because he loves you and he'll never stop. Oh, we have to plant that deep in our souls in suffering so we don't feel abandoned by God. Tim Keller said, suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. Suffering doesn't change that. And the second thing we call to mind is new mercies. New mercies. We have to remind ourselves in the midst of suffering that God's mercies are new every morning. I was so helped on this by Dane Ortland's great book, Gentle and Lowly. If you haven't read that book, read it. It's amazing. I have a million copies. I'll give you one. But here's how he explains it. So when we think about mercy, here's what we typically think about. We typically say mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve, right? We deserve bad things. God withholds bad things. That's mercy. Biblical mercy is actually closer to compassion, That former definition can feel like God's kind of distant and just not doling out punishments, but the the truth of Scripture is that God is near. He's with us in our mess. He cares. He wants our good, and he's going to do whatever it takes to get us out of it. That's the mercy of God towards us, and here's why that's so important. 
We've just read two uh, books in Jeremiah and Lamentations where God's judgment and God's righteousness are on display over and over and over again. But Scripture teaches us this. Scripture teaches us that while all of God's attributes are perfect, there are some things that are more central to his heart than others. Some things that flow out more naturally from him than others. Theologians call judgment God's strange work. That it's not his normal course of action. It's not his deepest heart. Look at, look at where we see this in Lamentations three thirty three. So I told you Lamentations is five poems. Each of the poems, except for chapter three, is uh, 24 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It's like this very formulated uh, poetic structure. Here's, you don't really need to know that except to know this. The middle of all of that, the literary high point, the thing that God is trying to emphasize the most in Lamentations comes in this verse. This is what he wants us to see more than anything else in uh, Lamentations 3.33. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of man. Here's what this verse is saying. God is behind their suffering. There is no doubt. But it's his strange work to send judgment. He doesn't do it from his heart. That there's something deeper in God, a more natural impulse that he has. Because what most naturally flows from him is not punishment, but mercy. You can think about it this way. Um, When someone startles you, what most naturally flows out of you? Like when you're not expecting to see someone. This happens to me like every day in our house. I know other people live with me. They still scare me. I don't know how it happens. I'm like doing my thing and all of a sudden, okay, so here's an example. I'm in the bathroom one day. Don't worry, this is like a bathroom story. I'm in the bathroom one day and I'm doing the mouthwash thing. I got a bunch of mouthwash in my mouth. I'm doing my thing. All of a sudden, Jen walks into the bathroom. How dare she? And scares me to death. Scares me to death. So mouthwash now is out of my mouth, all over the mirror, all over the counter, all over the floor, total mess. I'm angry because she walked into the bathroom. It's like a whole thing, right? So just naturally flows out of me this response. What naturally flows out of God? Mercy. That's what he loves to give. It's most central to his heart. Listen to what Dane Ortland says. Scripture tells us that God is slow to anger. He does not have his finger on the trigger It takes much accumulated provoking to draw out his wrath. Unlike us, who are emotional dams ready to break, God can put up with a lot. This is why the Old Testament speaks of God being provoked to anger by his people dozens of times. But not once are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation, but his mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded, while divine mercy is slow to build, but it's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. Most central to God's heart towards you is mercy. And you have to work that deep into your heart because in suffering, it feels like God's heart for you is punishment, distance, abandonment. Instead, we see that we come to him and his mercies are new every morning. His deepest heart is with you and to restore you. His mercies never run dry for you. They're always new. They never start running out. You never begin to drain them. 
always full, ready to pour out on you. So Dane Ortland goes on. Christ does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. He went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. Brothers and sisters, his mercies are new every morning. They're new every afternoon. They're new every night. They're new every time you sin. They're new every time you feel like your marriage is on the brink of falling apart. They're always new. They're always ready to burst forth for you. It's his deepest heart. Truth number five, suffering is never pointless, but we don't always see the point. Suffering is never pointless, but we don't always see the point. This is a short point, but I think it's worth making. We need to know before we go into suffering that suffering is not always linear. Here's what I mean. It's not as if suffering comes into our life and then it's hard for a while and then we see what God did and we're pain-free and we go, God, thank you so much for putting me through that. I never thought I needed it, but I did. Wouldn't it be great if it worked like that? Unfortunately, suffering is never linear. How do we know? Lamentations teaches us. Look at the last verses of Lamentations. Two chapters of lament. Chapter three, this great moment of hope. End of chapter five. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and remain exceedingly angry with us. That's how the book ends. So don't be surprised when you're suffering if you have great moments of hope and then you dive down into despair again. And then you believe great things about God and then you're not even sure if you're a Christian. Suffering is never linear. Never pointless, but we don't always see the point. And then lastly, this life is not ultimate and suffering has an expiration date. This life is not ultimate, and ultimately all suffering has an expiration date. One of the hardest things to remember in the midst of suffering is that it's temporary. What starts to happen when we start to feel deep pain and hardship is that we feel like this is never going to end. This is what life eternal is going to be like. I'll never get out of this moment. And I don't want to minimize the fact that some of you in this room are dealing with things, suffering in your life that will be lifelong. You'll never get over them. You'll never get past them. Pain that you feel, relationships that were broken. Some suffering is just like that. And this life will never get past it. But this life is not ultimate. All suffering has an expiration date. All suffering will come to an end. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What a great verse. You know, sometimes we say, you hear people say, in the midst of suffering, I can't wait to get to heaven and ask God why he put me through that. You know what I think? I think we'll get to heaven and that'll be the literal last thing on our minds. You're not going to be quizzing God about your affliction that you walk through. You're going to be going, oh my goodness, if I could have just had a glimpse of what I'm experiencing right now in perfection with God, I could have walked through that suffering so much differently because it's not even worth comparing to the glory that's ahead. It's not a scale where you're going, well, life is hard, but heaven is good. You know, it's like life is hard. Heaven is good. 
The glory that awaits us, not even worth comparing. It's in the midst of suffering. We always have to remember, this is temporary. Suffering has an expiration date. There's this beautiful moment in Lord of the Rings. I don't know how many of you have watched it or read it, um, where it looks like Gandalf is dead, and um, all hope is lost. Things are falling apart. And then Gandalf seems to come back to life. He shows back up on the scene. And Samwise Gamgee, who's the best character in the book of movies, says to, says to Gandalf, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then again, I thought I was dead. Are all sad things going to come untrue? Brothers and sisters, we do have a Savior who was dead, but who came back to life. And so because of the resurrection, because Jesus defeated death, hell, and the grave forever, we have this hope. All sad things will one day come untrue. This affliction is temporary, and it won't even be worth comparing the joy that is to come. How do we know? How do we know? Because Jesus is the ultimate Lamentations 3 sufferer. He is the only innocent sufferer who was torn apart by God. He faced the ultimate abandonment, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. And God seemingly didn't answer. And then on the cross, why have you forsaken me? Jesus faces the ultimate wrath. He drinks the bitter poison for us so that what we have now to drink is the sweet wine of steadfast love forever. Jesus did it all. He suffered it all. And so our suffering is now temporary and not even worth comparing to the hope and glory that is to come. Let's pray. Father, this is um, a hard book in many ways. It's, it's particularly hard for some of us probably to even hear a sermon like this because um, points like these uh, can be a little bit like a wet blanket when we're right in the middle of it. What we need more is compassion and grace a hug, a friend, a God who comforts us. And so two people I just want to pray for very quickly as we end this. The first person who's walking through some sort of suffering right now, that God, they would know that you're near to the brokenhearted, that you're not distant and indifferent, that gushing from your heart is new mercy every day. And God, for those of us who aren't suffering right now, that we would prepare well because it's coming and that we wouldn't be surprised, but that we would see the full effect of what you want to do in us, even through our hardship, because you're a God who works all things together for our good. And so when we suffer, help us to do it well and to trust you, trust you, trust you as we walk through it. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.